Acts chapter 15 is such an important chapter for dealing with the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. For those of you who have read through the Old Testament, there is a lot in there. When you read the closing part of Exodus, and then you read throughout Leviticus, there are a lot of laws given to the children of Israel. In very specific detail, it gives details about what they can and cannot do with the shape and, 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 and trimming of their beard. It gives extensive detail as to what they do with, with regard to uh, marriage, with, with the relationships of marriage, with regard to lepers and the cleansing of lepers, with regard to sacrifice and the details of sacrifice, with regard to morality and interaction with, labors, uh, with, with neighbors. There is so much that's in there that makes the law, what was required of an Israelite, really clear. They knew exactly what they were to do and what they were not to do. It was written with letters that anyone could read, and it did not change from year to year, from season to season, from generation to generation. And so that's going to be the challenge that now comes in. You have thousand years plus where the Jews have sought to varying degrees to live and order their life according to those laws. And in the time of Christ, there were groups among them, known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who had really sought to distinguish themselves, in particular the Pharisees, as men of the law. And they would really press these things upon the people. And here's part of the challenge is, in the mercies of God... They came to know and understand by grace through the working of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That Jesus Christ died for our sin, was buried, rose again on the third day, is ascended at the right hand of God, and will be coming again. So they came to recognize this, but part of the challenge is, even as they came to recognize the riches of Christ, there was a tendency to cling to some of the traditions of the law that had come with them. Now before we pass harsh and strict judgment upon them, we can see the same dangers in some of the Gentile churches, dangers of incorporating and the compromising things of their particular paganism and their particular practices, right? Uh, uh, in First in Corinthians, you struggle with people practicing a, a, a form of tongues which was absolutely not understandable, not, not interpretable, not translatable. He's like, what are you doing? If you're going to use this, and if it is a gift of the Spirit, it needs to be given, it needs to be given with translation so that God's people can be edified. Stop doing what happens over there in the pagan temples of Diana, where people work themselves into a mindless frenzy and just begin to make a bunch of rambling noises. Or others, supposedly in the ancient oracles of Delphi, who, who would become overwrought by spirits and then begin speaking in un, unknown but not understandable sounds. And so here's the danger always. 
We don't want Christ plus all the baggage that we bring with us. We want Christ to see him in the fullness of what he is. Now listen, it's one thing to say that we want Christ, and I, I think we would struggle to find any church, any Christian group anywhere who would say, well, we don't want Christ. Because the moment they say that, we know that it's not a church. And, and, and none of them would even overtly say Christ is not enough. Or hopefully they would not, Christian churches say, we want Christ plus this. But listen, even if it's not conscious, we have the tendency to drag our traditions, our experiences, and our expectations into the churches that we become a part of. And it is our responsibility by the grace of God to learn to put aside those things that are not taught us in Christ. That we would lay hold of him in the absolute purity of these things. Because these are not small issues. We began to see last week with regard to circumcision, which is what they began to uh, initially demand here in uh, uh, Antioch in Syria. And they've come now to ask this question. In Jerusalem, which is the place where still you had most of the apostles and most those who have been directly taught and trained in sound doctrine by the apostles, the fellow elders with the apostles in that church. Here we have the soundest group of men that have been taught directly by Christ or directly by those taught by Christ. We're going to send also there Paul and Barnabas, whom themselves are apostles. And in one place, you're going to have these men that Christ has established, that he will lay the foundation of the church and build it upon these men with he himself as the chief cornerstone. And so they come, and they're addressing these very questions. What do we do about circumcision? And what do we do about the law of Moses? Now, these are stated as two things, which many times in our minds, they're not. But for those who were with us last week, we saw that circumcision preceded the law of Moses. Circumcision was given to Abraham and to Abraham and his offspring. And it would be taken up again and subsumed for the people of Israel who would be brought to be a nation uh, under the law of Moses. But it, it would be noted to them this, that this is an outward sign. And it was stated very clearly in Genesis 17 that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And what we began to look at, and we're going to continue and kind of finish up this week, Colossians tells us there were a lot of signs. There were a lot of shadows. But the substance is Christ. And so we want to stop looking at the sign and look at Christ. The way, the way I often picture it is, again, would it make sense to spend all your time standing there in Arizona and looking at a sign that says, you are at the Grand Canyon? And you just keep looking at that sign. You all line up, get your picture taken by that sign. You, you know, circle the sign seven times, go back to your car. 
Is that what people do? And do they go back and tell people, you should have seen that sign. Uh, I mean, that's not what makes people in awe when they go there. Right? Generally speaking, when you, when you walk up and you step there, you'd have figured out it was the Grand Canyon, maybe even without the sign. You think? Yeah, and, and it's, it's the canyon that you're in awe of. It's what's big. It's what's beautiful. It's what's glorious. It's what's awe-inspiring. And so most people, when they walk away with photographs from such an experience, it's a lot of pictures of the canyon. And the canyon in the background of people, not much of the sign. And so we want to we see that uh, these signs held value. And they hold even more value, you know, if, if it's right there on the edge of the cliff, kind of self-explanatory. Maybe at, as you're at a distance, five more miles till. Okay, three more miles till. The signs are helpful and necessary until what? Until you reach there. When you've arrived, you know need of the sign. Right? I mean, it ought to be clear to us, but here is the challenge. This sign has been a part of their people for over a century. And anyone who wanted from any of the nations wanted to become a worshiper of the true God, the God who sent his son as the Messiah, accomplished redemption and forgiveness of sin in his son. The, that true God, to become a worshiper of that true God under the old covenant, what did everyone from the nations have to do? They had to receive the sign of circumcision and they had to submit themselves, commit themselves to the law of Moses. Right? So before we're getting too harsh on these fellas, remember, all they've known... Is what they've known. Which is kind of where we're all at. We only know what we know. But it was Christ. Who uniquely prepared his apostles. For that new covenant in his blood. When Jesus really pre presents that new covenant. And expounds it. How many people are there. At the Lord's Supper. At that last Passover meal. Are there hundreds and hundreds of people? Are all these Pharisees that will later, later be converted there? No. And so, so we've got to understand this. Listen, we will always and often continue to be wrong until we're right. I mean, I know that sounds pretty obvious. But, but the, the, the point is, there, there's a way that seems right to man. There's a, this fits my understanding and this fits my experience. And until we're more rightly taught, we don't know. Those of you who, who have been uh, reading through, again, the book of Acts uh, with the McShane reading, we remember Apollos came in to a certain t uh, town and he began speaking and he was competent in the scriptures. He spoke rightly the things concerning Christ. But he didn't rightly understand baptism. 
He didn't understand that it was not just repentance, but it was repentance from sin and faith in the one who was to come. That is Jesus Christ. It's repentance and faith. And, and, upon, you know, and so he, when he understood that, when Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more clearly, it became clear. When Paul in Acts 19 meets some disciples who had only understood the baptism or only received the baptism of John, but they'd not heard about Christ. He explained it to them, and on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there, there is a process. There's no shame in the fact that we learn and we grow and we mature and make progress. We can't, be, we can't be a people who say, no, this is where I'm going to stand. This is where I've always stood. I'm, I'm not going to move. But if it's wrong, well, you want to keep standing there if it's wrong. Well, it takes, you know, if I admit that I'm wrong, then what? You're human? Every single one of us will at times be wrong. And it is part of the process of growth to submit ourselves to the learning of the scriptures. Now, for them, they were told, that, look, this circumcision that you would receive outwardly, it, it wasn't the circumcision itself that saved you. It would be a reminder that you needed an inward circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. And they were commanded to do that. And then again, it was revealed to them that that command to circumcise their heart was beyond them was a work of grace that God himself needed to do to them and that he indeed would do those things. And we found, and, and I'll pick it up again by taking us to what it says in Colossians 2, 11 and following. In him, in Christ, those of us who are united to Christ by faith through the working of the Holy Spirit by grace and the hearing of the gospel, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands see this is to colossians this is to non-jewish church by the putting off of the flesh by the circumcision of christ so my union with christ any circumcision of the flesh requirement that's needed christ did that for me and i'm united with him i don't need that but in my union with him a spiritual circumcision has taken place that is the putting off of the flesh. The flesh no longer has dominion over me. Sin no longer has mastery over me. But now by the grace of God, I'm born of the Spirit. I'm led by the Spirit. I'll walk by the Spirit. Right? And so this is a, a glorious thing. It says, and having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith, in the powerful working of God. Which is again I noted this last week. Why it breaks my heart that anyone would ever experience a baptism. That they would not have a clear recollection of being baptized and raised through faith in Christ. A baptism in which you are not raised through faith in Christ. What is it? It's a ritual. You know, you can throw fancy words like sacrament all over it. But it ain't real if it's not united with Christ. And that's what we're going to keep hearing over and over again today. 
it's not real unless it's united with Christ. A Christian. It's not a real Christian unless he's united with Christ. Right? A church is not a real church unless it is united with and led by Christ. And I cannot overstate this. He goes on still to say in, in Colossians. And we jump on down to verse 16, Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. So the, the struggle that they were having and the issue they came together with is what are we going to do? Moving forward for the nations with circumcision, which is how you were identified with Abraham, and the law of Moses, how you are identified with Israel, the people of God. How are we going to deal with this? And I want us to not miss this. In this very passage that we looked at, it said, it said these words down in verse 28, Acts 15, 28. Now, you know what they did not say? Circumcision is not necessary, but you still got to keep the law of Moses. They did not say that. You know what else they did not say? And I don't want to mean to make anyone uncomfortable, so bear with me because we'll get to the full import later. They didn't say circumcision's not necessary and all the dietary laws are canceled, but the Ten Commandments still stand. It's not what they said. They could have. I mean, here convened were all of the apostles uniquely appointed by Christ to lay that foundation to the church and clearly powerfully present and working among them, the Holy Spirit. Don't believe for a moment the Holy Spirit somehow failed or forgot to prompt them rightly regard, regarding the Ten Commandments. Do not. It says this in verse 28. For it has seemed good... To the Holy Spirit. After that, I really didn't need the next three words. And to us. <laughs> I didn't need that. If it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, it's good. But it is the plan of God that the Holy Spirit works to lay that foundation and set forth true doctrine through the apostles. And so here we have it. The Holy Spirit and to us to listen. To lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. I mean, so, no greater, which means beyond these, how many more requirements will be laid on them? None. Now, some will say, well, this is a very brief list. It doesn't even say to love one another. It doesn't even say to show humility. Uh, well, no other requirements of the law will be laid on them. There are certainly a multitude of wonderful commandments and instructions that Christ has laid out for his people. But I want us to see this. It says this, no greater burden than these requirements. 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols or what has been polluted with idols, it says back in verse 20. And from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you do well. Someone says, what? How is that? And, and, and confusion arises in our mind to say, well, he didn't say nothing about not lying. He didn't say nothing about adultery. Well, listen, we are no longer under the old covenant. We are no longer under the law of Moses. But don't miss this for a single moment. Everyone's memorized John 3.16. I encourage you to give a little memorization also to 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, when it says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is profitable. Is it referring to the Old Testament too? Yes, it is. We are not under the old covenant, but nonetheless, all scripture is profitable. One, one of the things that often stirs up people's mind is they have such a commitment to what's called the Decalogue. It, it, the, the, this, this is God's eternal, unchanging moral law. Uh, no, it's not. It's not enough. Here it actually says, to, in these brief ones, it says to keep themselves from sexual immorality. Which is actually far more comprehensive than the Ten Commandments was. It only forbid adultery. Is that the totality of God's moral law regarding sexual purity? It's not. The Ten Commandments were never the entirety of God's law to the children of Israel. They were indicative. They were the ten words that they heard that were indicative that the whole law given to them had been given by God. These ten are written on tablets of stone and you heard them with your own ears. Let them be a testimony to you that the whole book of the law, the whole book of the covenant is required of you. Okay? So listen, many of the laws, not the law, singular, the law of Moses, which is an entire code, an entire law book, but many of the laws were laws of God before the Ten Commandments. We've talked about this in the past. When Cain killed Abel, could Cain simply say to God, you didn't say anything about killing anybody. No, there is a sense in which the law of God is written on his heart. He knew that he was wrong. He knew that it was a sin and that it was absolutely unacceptable. E even with regard to uh, some other uh, matters regarding uh, food, for example. Uh, one of the things that we see unpacked in there when Noah comes out in about Genesis 20, when Noah comes out, or Genesis 8 and 9, when he comes out of the ark, God says to him, as I had given you all of the plants for food, so now I give to you 
all of the animals, all the things that creep and all the things that crawl, all of them are given to you as food. Which did not at that point forbid the little piggy. You know, it didn't at that point uh, forbid some good shrimp, and so it, you know, which would later be forbidden of the children of Israel. But it wasn't, it wasn't a requirement for Noah. He could eat those things, but he was told even then, but do not eat it with the blood in it. Because the blood was representative of life. And so he was not to take and eat it. So that requirement to not eat, a, a sense, a, a, there's a sense in which when you look at that uh, a, a raw, it would be kind of like, you got to kill and cook the thing. You don't just, you know, walk by and pick up an animal on the side of the road and start eating. I, you know, I don't know if you've ever been tempted as such. But, but again, there are, but there are things that happen in different cultures. And God, God is laying out these things. So some of the things that are being said here, they clearly go back from before. When God had set, set um, Abraham on his journey, he came to Abimelech. Now that's Genesis 20. And with Abimelech, he saw the beauty of Sarah and says what? Bring her to my house. And God kept him from committing a sin with her, actually by giving him a disease, <laughs> and his household closing all the wombs. But uh, he prevented him from doing this sin. And he tells them, I prevented you from doing this sin. That's before there was any prohibition of adultery. So listen, a lot of the laws given in the Old Covenant, reflect the moral standards of God that precede it and that follow it and we live out today. Okay? And so there is much to be gleaned. And so carefully when we study the Old Testament, we've got to study each one carefully to understand which of these was clearly for them under that covenant and which ones clearly were required of even people outside. Sodom and Gomorrah had no commands given to them written that they would, should not be committing immorality and homosexuality. Right? They had no such scriptures, but as they did that, what did God do? He came down and brought them judgment for that perversion because it was a wickedness that preceded when God said under the law, a man shall not lay with another man as he lays with a woman. He laid it out explicitly for the children of Israel, but there it was simply reflecting a law of God that preceded it. So it's, it takes a lot of prayer and patience and work for us to figure out, well, which are the ones that carry a cross? But we want to not bring things across that don't belong being brought across. For example, considering the food. That I think is an easy one to take up. When we're considering the food, when, he, when they say they have to follow the customs of Moses, follow the practice of Moses, they're expecting them to have to abstain. Now, some of the things that are commanded in there, listen, some of the things that are given to the Gentiles 
We don't even see in detail what is this that it shouldn't be shouldn't be strangled? What is this that it shouldn't be uh, offered as idol? Where, God never said it, it couldn't be strangled to Noah. What is all of this? Well, listen, part of it was, in, even in the Gentile context, there's going to be Jews among them. And so to some degree, it is healthy to recognize this. We can consider the conscience of our brothers. So though we might have some freedom, we can deny ourselves freedom for the glory of God and the good of one another. Now with regard to food, we, we, we considered this before uh, when we were in Acts chapter 10. When Peter is there on top of, of the house of Simon the Tanner and, and the vision of the sheet comes down with all kinds of animals on it, God gives him those instructions, rise kill and eat and he says no way by no means i have never and i'm always shocked by this because peter then says this happened three times so god brings the sheet down tells him rise kill and eat he says i'm not because i've never touched anything unclean god says don't call something unclean that i say it's clean when it came down the second time, what did Peter do? I mean, my thought was, the second time it comes down, he says, rise, kill, and eat. Let's get it. <laughs> you know, go, because God's just told me all this is clean. But I think there's something helpful for us to notice there. It's easy for us to jump in. What's wrong with Peter? I'll tell you what's wrong with him. He's a lot like you and me. <laughs> we are reluctant to put aside our ideas, our opinions, our thoughts, our experience, and just follow and obey God. Sometimes we think we know better. We don't. Nobody knows better than God. And so this happened to him three times, and then eventually he figured it out. But listen, a few more verses. In Mark chapter 7, they were so worried about, uh, your, your disciples are eating without washing their hands, following the tradition of the elders. You know, because they're doing this, they're becoming unclean. And I think there's a hygienic benefit to that pattern, no doubt about it. But... They were speaking that they are ceremonially unclean. They are unfit before God because of how they are eating their food. At that point, they were eating the right foods, killed in the right way. They were just not washing their hands correctly. Well, Jesus says in Mark 7, 18, he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? That whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. Now, Jesus is preparing for that transition between the old and the new covenant. And it was as simple as this. Look, eating bacon is not going to make you impure. That's not what messes you up. What messes you up isn't what you put in you. 
It's what's already in you. Because out of your heart comes all manner of evil. Evil thoughts, evil desires, evil practices, evil words. They all come from within you. And it says this, still there in Mark 7. Um, Since it enters not his heart, but into his stomach and then is expelled. I mean, this is, it, it doesn't deal with the real heart issues. To distinguish the children of Israel, they had all kinds of patterns and practices to distinguish them, to remind them of the heart issues that ought be there. But they wanted to focus on just the outward. But Jesus actually ends that verse there. I don't know if you've seen it. The end, Mark 7, 19. Since it enters not into his heart, but is expelled from his stomach. Thus he declared all foods clean. Do you, do you hear what that says? Literally it is. The word declaring is not there. It's, it would be more this. Thus cleansing all foods. Uh, excuse me. Uh, what would give Jesus the right to say this is clean and acceptable when the law given through Moses said unclean and unacceptable? Hmm. Here's why Jesus is greater than Moses. He's a greater prophet. He's a greater lawgiver. And it, it's just like what God himself will say to Peter as he sits on top of that. He declared all food cleans. Uh, do not call uh, what God has made clean, Acts 10, 15, do not call common. And what's interesting is in Romans chapter 14, and I, I just want to point this out kind of by way of passing. In Romans 14, it says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him and do not quarrel over it. Okay, so you don't have to secretly put bacon bits in his salad. You don't have to, 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 to try to get... You ate it and you're still okay. <laughs> you learned something? You, just, just be patient with them. You don't quarrel. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't discuss it. You can't commune over it. Because we're all in the process, hopefully, of growing. But it says, look, one person believes that he may eat anything. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, what's interesting about that is, here, here, here it is saying, the weak person has limited themselves. And sometimes people would go even further than the, the legal requirements that were placed upon the Israelites. And they think of the passion and commitment of Daniel. You remember Daniel? He did not feast of the delicacies that were brought to him, but he decided he and his friends were going to eat only vegetables. And they ended up being healthier than the others. And so someone wants to rise up and say, we're going to have even a stricter standard than the one given through Moses. We're going all the way to Daniel. And the funny thing is, they would stand there and think what? We are the strongest Christians because we have denied ourselves these things. The scripture here actually says, actually, that's the weak fellow. 
the one who eats only vegetables, he's the weak one. He doesn't understand the fullness of what is given us in Christ. So the, he, he's confused of those things. But he also does warn in verse, he says, don't pass judgment. So the person who feels, don't pass judgment on the one who eats. And the person who eats, don't pass judgment on that fella. Pray for his conscience, pray for his growth, pray for his understanding, because it's a struggle. We are all in that process. Now here, listen. It says this in, in Romans 14 verse 5. As we were talking this morning earlier about the conscience. It says this. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Each one should be fully convinced in his own. But they're fully convinced of wrong positions. Someone's got to be wrong. That's true. Someone is wrong. But let the one who eats eat unto the Lord. Let the one who denies himself eating something, let him deny himself for the sake of the Lord. Make sure your heart is in the right place even if your practices are different. Wait a second. So you're saying if, if presently, because I still have some growth to make, my conscience is not clear to partake of those things, then I should not do that? Well, the scripture reminds us, whatever is not of faith is sin. If you can't, in the full conviction of your mind, partake of that, you have any uncertainty and doubt, don't take it. Someone says, under the old covenant, it was, this is wrong for everybody, this is right for everybody, and now you're saying that it, it might be wrong for me today, but in five years it might be right, all right for me? Yeah. Well, that's confusing. Well, the problem possibly would be if you say it's wrong for you now and you lock it down instead of lovingly learning all that the scripture has to say that you can make growth and make progress. And maybe in the course of time, remember, they didn't have the scriptures available to them. The person who's not eating can see Jesus declared all foods clean. What am I doing? How dare I, like Peter, call something unclean that Jesus has called clean? I can, in good conscience, go ahead and eat that. But I, I ask you this. Does every Christian, on the day that they're born again, do they automatically have Matthew or Mark 7.19 memorized? No. And maybe they're told as they, as they become believers, uh, start by reading the Gospel of Matthew or start by reading John. And they, and they work their way through and they're growing. They may not come across these things for a while. It's all right. Be patient with them. Don't mistreat. Don't disparage them. Want to move on um, uh, even further. Um, in Matthew Chapter 5, for example, Jesus is giving an example of things that were declared to them under the old covenant law. He says, you have heard it say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. A life for a life. Remember that? And then Jesus says, but I say unto you. <laughs> you, can't, you can't change the law. Or can he? Actually, he can. Since God himself is the one who originally gave the legal requirements to Israel, 
The very God who is establishing a new covenant can give the terms of that covenant. And he says, but I say unto you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, a cheek for a cheek, my friend. What heck? Is that what we do? No. You turn him the other cheek. Wait a second. I would be right under the law to smack that fella. You're not under that law anymore. You can't smack him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You leave it to him. What if they take advantage of me? What if they take my coat? Give them another one. What if they force me to walk a mile, inconveniencing me? Walk another while with them. What? I, I don't get it. What if, well, the law said, whoever wants to divorce his wife, give her a certificate of divorce. And what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. I say to you, that everyone who divorces a wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Later on the scriptures will say, it was not so from the beginning. So when God established marriage, was divorce a thing? No. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder, no one separate. God permitted, well, why did he permit Jesus explains, Moses permitted due to the hardness of your hearts. So listen, the law that was given through Moses, it's not the higher standard. It itself is even lower to the limit, accommodated in parts to the weakness of men. The law of God is so much higher Remember, Jesus even will go on to say things like um, Romans 13. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It says the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not, co not covet. And other commandments are all summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And someone says, they're all summed up and I shall love my neighbor as myself? This is actually going to be a two-part sermon, by the way, because, again, it's happening. Uh, uh, I should love my neighbor as myself. Um, by what? Not this, and not that, and not this, and not that? Well, that means when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? What is this requirement? Well, as you pass by that, that individual who's there laying on the road... You don't go commit adultery with his wife, all right? You, 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 don't, you don't kick him while he's down. You don't do anything bad to him. You don't, don't steal his mule. It, you know, as long as you're not doing stuff, then you're good, right? No, see, the, the Ten Commandments gave prohibitions about particular bad behaviors. Jesus took it to a whole nother level. Who was the good neighbor? To that fellow, the one who came, who saw his need, who stooped down, was inconvenienced for the good of another, 
who took him, cared for him, washed him, met his needs. So Jesus takes it not, not merely at times into simply prohibitions. It's not only don't do bad to them, but it is now do good to them. So if I pass somebody by that I see in need and I have opportunity to do good to, I have done wrong. I didn't break any of the Ten Commandments, but I did wrong. Because God's law is higher than those things. I'm going to close up with, with, with this for today. Um, some dear brothers and sisters, as a result of seeing these things, tend to go too far to the other side and, and say, um, see, the Old Testament was, was, was written on, on, on tablets of stone and with letters, and, and it killed. But see, the, today, it's, it's love God and love your neighbors. And it, it's, it's not a written thing. The, it, the law was a... a, a comprehensive list that they could not do but for us there's no list say well, brother sister you better keep reading your scripture because there are lots of lists lots of lists of do not do this no more lots of lists of start doing this now for the children of Israel theirs was a comprehensive law our lists are not comprehensive. Many of them are given in general spirit and attitude of how we should act, not a detail in every given situation. But as an example of that, it says in Romans 12, um, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal but fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. What's wrong with Paul? How dare he make a list? It's okay to make a list. There, so I'm saying that there are people who like to say, free from the law. Nobody give me any laws. Nobody give me any commandments. Nobody give me any lists. No. We're free from that law that condemned. Now we have the law of liberty no longer under the dominion of sin to walk by the Spirit, to put to death the desires of the Spirit and live in a way that's pleasing to God. And so the child of God, really his heart cries out, tell me what you want. Make lists for me what you want. Give, give me general principles and general instructions that can pertain to every practical situation, even if you're not going to address all of them, but lay it out for me. Lay it out firm, lay it out clear, lay it out hard. If you want to prohibit drunkenness, do that. And he does. <laughs> if you want to pro prohibit anger and malice and, and crass speaking, do that. And if you want to encourage humility... Care, generosity, love. Do that. And he does. And so, uh, again, uh, uh, reminding you, even urging you, read it on your own, Colossians chapter 3, that tells you to put off, and then a, a wonderful list of actions and attitudes, and to put on. A necessary list of actions and attitudes. So listen, we still have commands written. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3 and following says this. This is the love of God. 
that we obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. So listen, we are not under the law of Moses, but we are not a lawless people. We are under the law of God in Christ, which is the law of the Spirit and a law of liberty that has a multitude of blessed commandments revealed to us throughout the Scripture that we might know what is pleasing in His sight and that we might live in a way that rightly represents the one who is our life. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your, the power and clarity of your word. And as we work through it, I pray that you'll, you'll give a hunger and desire in the hearts of your people as we, we deal with these things. Maybe now some of the details even that I'll deal with next week may not be what each of us is wrestling with now. But that Christ is the full and glorious fulfillment of all of the shadows and signs. Lord, we can glory in that. And we also know that in the process of our journey, we may come across brothers and sisters in Christ who, who to a degree, are, are, are still clinging to a sign or a shadow. And so we pray that the instruction that we received today regarding food and even next week, week with regard to festivals and Sabbaths, that God, you would help make these things clear. That you would give us a firm foundation upon Christ, upon the fullness of the new covenant revealed in his blood. And you would prepare us to be able to be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters who through a tradition or doctrine are still somehow slightly slaves to the shadow. Lord, we thank you that the light has dawned upon us. May it shine so brightly. That it reveals not only our sin leading us to repentance, but also helps us by grace to walk in the light as children of the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.